I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that shines a light on the ups and downs of everyday history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're reflecting on one of the most shocking, yet least remembered, moments of the civil rights movement. As a warning, today's episode includes descriptions of police brutality and may be upsetting for some listeners. The day was February 8, 1968. White state troopers shot and killed three unarmed black students on a college campus in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Located between Columbia and Charleston, the city of Orangeburg has long been the home of two historically black colleges and universities, South Carolina State and Claflin. In the 1960s, this put the city in the unique position of having more educated black citizens than many other southern towns. As you might expect, much of that black population was heavily involved in the civil rights movement of the era. Martin Luther King Jr. even stopped in Orangeburg on several occasions to deliver speeches. His spirit of activism took root in the city's colleges, and students often led protests to combat racism in their own community. By the early months of 1968, the students focused their efforts on one target in particular, a local bowling alley owned by white proprietor Harry Floyd. The 1964 Civil Rights Act had outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. But four years later, Floyd's all-star bowling lanes was still whites only. Local black community leaders had tried several times to convince him to integrate his business, but Floyd refused, claiming that he'd lose all his white customers if he allowed blacks to bowl. Finally, on February 5th, 
a group of students took matters into their own hands by going to the bowling alley and staging a sit-in at the lunch counter. The protest ended without incident after the police were called and the business closed early. But the students returned the next day, and as soon as they entered the building, 15 of them were arrested for trespassing. News of the arrests traveled fast in the small town, and hundreds of students began to gather in a nearby parking lot to plan their next move. The growing crowd was soon confronted by Orangeburg police officers and state troopers, who assured them that the arrested students would soon be released. The situation was de-escalating nicely, until a fire truck arrived on the scene. For many in the crowd, the truck's arrival reminded them of a demonstration they had attended a year earlier, in which powerful hoses were turned on them as a method of crowd control. Fearing that history was about to repeat itself, many of the students rushed toward the bowling alley for shelter, and in their panic, one of them broke a pane of glass. Moments later, the police advanced on the students and began beating them indiscriminately, both men and women alike. The fleeing students were enraged by this show of police brutality, and on the way back to their respective campuses, several smashed the windows of white-owned businesses and defaced the cars parked outside them. These incidents prompted an overreaction from white South Carolina Governor Robert McNair. He called in the National Guard, and by the evening of February 8th, several tanks and more than a hundred heavily armed officers had cordoned off the South Carolina state campus. Late that night, around 100 students gathered on the campus lawn to protest the city's occupation. Some of them chanted Black Power at the armed officers stationed around them, while others formed a chorus singing We Shall Overcome. Everything remained peaceful until around 10 p.m. when the students lit a bonfire to keep warm and the patrolmen once again called in the fire department. The firefighters were escorted onto campus by police armed with carbines, pistols, and riot guns. Then, at 10.30 p.m., someone in the crowd threw an object at the police. Some witnesses said it was a piece of a wooden banister, while others claimed it was something smaller. In either case, the object struck patrolman Dave Sheely in the face, at which point nine of his fellow officers opened fire on the unarmed students. It was standard police practice to use birdshot when dispersing a riot, even though the campus gathering hardly qualified as such but it was later revealed that the officers that night had loaded their guns with double-aught buckshot, a much higher caliber ammunition. The results of that choice were devastating. The patrolman fired into the mostly black crowd for at least eight seconds, and when it was over, 28 students lay injured, and three more were dead. Two of the black gentlemen who were killed that night had attended South Carolina State, Samuel Hammond, an 18-year-old freshman from Florida, and Henry Smith, an 18-year-old sophomore from Marion, South Carolina. The third victim, Delano Middleton, was a 17-year-old high school student. He had been waiting for his mother to finish her shift as a campus custodian and happened to be sitting near the protest when the shooting started. The police later claimed that the students had shot first but numerous witness accounts from reporters, firefighters, and students contradicted their story. Multiple investigations found no evidence that any of the protesters had firearms, but that didn't stop Governor McNair from blaming the violence on, quote, black power advocates. 
he insisted that the officers had fired in self-defense after being attacked by students wielding firebombs and sniper rifles. These lies were repeated by local newspapers and eventually by national outlets. The Associated Press, for example, described the incident as a, quote, heavy exchange of gunfire, a false statement for which it never issued a correction. The actual evidence from the night of the shooting told a much different story. All but two of the students killed or injured had been shot in the back, the side, or through the soles of their feet. They weren't injured while attacking the police. They were gunned down while trying to get away. The nine patrolmen who opened fire that night were later charged for their role in the shooting and stood trial in 1969. But in an outcome that seems sickeningly predictable today, all of them were exonerated. In fact, the only person convicted of a crime in connection with the Orangeburg massacre was one of the victims. Cleveland Sellers, a young black activist and the program director of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had been shot in the side of his arm while on campus. His work with the committee made him a convenient scapegoat for the state, so even though he had played a minimal role in the protest, Sellers was charged and ultimately found guilty of inciting a riot. He went on to serve about eight months of his year-long prison sentence and was then released early on good behavior. More than two decades later, Sellers was granted a formal pardon, but he refused to have his record expunged, viewing it as what he called a badge of honor. I accepted the pardon, he told reporters, but that doesn't clean the slate. In the decades since, several South Carolina governors and mayors have made other attempts to clean the slate by issuing apologies to the victims and their families. Multiple memorials have also been raised in their honor, and SC State commemorates the tragedy each year. Nonetheless, the events at Orangeburg remain largely unknown to the general public. That oversight seems downright damning when you consider the prominence held by similar shootings involving white student protesters, such as those at Kent State and Jackson State. The Orangeburg Massacre deserves a place in America's collective memory, because if we're ever to have any hope of addressing the systemic failures that led to it, we have to remember that it happened in the first place. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to drop me a line by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. 
This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.